I wanted to get honest with you here. We've reached a time in history when managing through fear and intimidation, command and control power structures, and do-as-I-say ways of managing no longer work. To speed up the effectiveness of your leadership team and the growth of your business, there's a much better way of leading. Now, as many of you know, I speak often at company events and conferences all over the world. If you bring me to speak at your event, you're going to discover the evidence-based leadership practices that result in a positive, engaging, and high-performing organization. Leaders will walk away with a practical framework to help design the best work environment for their people to flourish. Because when they do, your business will flourish as well. To find out more about my speaking engagements, workshops, and keynotes, visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Speaking. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. So the political divide in the United States is, is so wide right now, and it's moving so fast, I fear, for where humanity is, is headed. I mean, political polarization, at least here in America, it gets personal too, and it's making us all miserable. Surveys show that Americans have been more fearful and more hateful to, of people of the opposing political party in the last three to five years. And according to polls, most people think that those on the other side of the aisle hold much more extreme views than they actually do. So we have barricaded ourselves from part of society, whichever side you come from. We prefer to date and marry those with similar opinions and worldviews, and we're less willing, willing to spend time with people on the other side. We're becoming less tolerant of anyone's opposing view that doesn't align with our own thinking, our own ideology, to the point where we are ostracizing people. And heck, some of us may not even know that we're doing it because we're becoming addicted to this cycle of divisiveness, right? So it becomes a way of being. We have reached a state of toxic polarization. So how do we find a way out of this mess? That's what this episode is about because I spoke with social psychologist Peter T. Coleman to explore how conflict resolution and, and something called complexity science provide us with the guidance we need to deal with our political differences in a way that allows us to respectfully come to the table. In my conversation with Peter, he explains why we're stuck in this rut, as well as the unexpected ways that deeply rooted oppositions can and do change. Peter shared with me the principles and practices for navigating and healing the difficult divides that we're now finding in our own homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, with lessons from leading edge research that he's going to share with us. Now, this is a conversation that may truly, potentially, end the divisions in your own families, in your own workplaces. It's opened up my eyes and it gave me hope because like so many of you, I'm sure, I'm personally fed up and exhausted from the culture wars and the hatred and all this confirmation bias. I'm fed up with conversations that are now weaponized by the far left or the far right political ideologies leading to broken relationships, broken family systems and, and dysfunctional workplaces. Peter T. Coleman wrote the book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. So 
if you're struggling with the collapse of healthy family dynamics, perhaps that's you. If you find yourself getting sucked into hostile political debates that go nowhere, maybe at, in, in your workplace, maybe in your own neighborhoods, or if you find yourself avoiding some of your colleagues or neighbors from the other camp altogether, or like me, if you just feel exhausted and worried about the anger and, and hopelessness and division erupting all around us, this book and this episode is for you. It will show you the way out, the way forward, if you are open to coming to the middle. Dr. Peter T. Coleman is professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. Dr. Coleman is a renowned expert on conflict resolution and sustainable peace. He's written numerous books, including Making Conflict Work, Navigating Disagreement Up and Down Your Organization. And that book won the 2016 Outstanding Book Award from the International Association of Conflict Management. Dr. Coleman is a member of the United Nations Mediation Support Unit's Academic Advisory Council and is a New York State certified mediator. His work has been featured all over the place, the New York Times, the Guardian, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and various international outlets. And I'm honored that Dr. Peter T. Coleman took the time to stop in and have this conversation with me. So let's get right to it. All right, Peter, so welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time off to, to come visit us and chat with us. So we start the show with this. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready for whatever. <laughs> Peter, what's your story? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I actually just I, about a month ago published something on Medium, which is a, a short story of me and my life and my work. And so I'm prepared for that. But I mm -hmm. uh, so I was born 1959, Chicago. And, uh, you know, grew up in the 60s in Chicago, which was a time of great tumult, as you probably are well aware, political division, you know, anti-establishment, anti-war protests, the Democratic Convention was there, and there were riots, and, you know, so I grew up in that space, and I had uh, siblings that were about 10 years older than me, so um, I was very aware of that, right? I was aware of, you know, something that psychologists call macro worry. I was aware that there was a lot of, you know, chaos in our life. And frankly, uh, we had family stuff, right? We had mm -hmm. uh, parents divorced when I was 10. And so there was internal tension. And then there was sort of societal tension. And that's the kind of space I grew up in. So I, I attribute my interest in, in peace and constructive conflict resolution, mediation, negotiation, all that stuff, um, to my origins of growing up in a space where there was a lot of tension, some of it good tension. You know, Martin Luther King had come to Chicago about that time and was sort of re-strategizing for the civil rights movement. And so there were, you know, positive things that came out of that era. But as we know, there was also a lot of ugliness. Like three careers later, you know, <laughs> I found myself at Columbia. I was working with a, a brilliant man named Morton Deutsch, and he had spent his life studying conflict and trying to understand the conditions where it went well or went poorly, right? So conflict is just, you know, kind of like sex. It's a fundamental part of our life. Uh, the question is, when does it go well? And when does it go south and get really, you know, ugly? And so I was attracted to that idea because I grew up in this space. You know, I, I understood conflict from a personal level, but intellectually, I didn't, it was hard to make sense of it. So so that you know, that's my story. I, I think the the tipping point to get me to Columbia to study conflict was that I was working at some point after a couple of other careers. I'd been an actor in New York City and done other things, but I um, I started to work in a psychiatric hospital with twelve to twenty eight year old youth who many of them were addicted to drugs and or had been committed crimes and were you know under sentencing, and so it was a violent population. And I, you know, was trying to work with them and understand how to help and how to bring down tensions because there was a lot of tension. It was a it was a small hospital, but there was a lot of violence in the hospital. And I found myself oftentimes 
after having established, you know, relationships and almost friendships with a lot of these young people who were about my age, I found myself, you know, kind of at the front lines when they would escalate to try to sort of just talk them down, had no idea what I was doing other than, you know, it, my gut, you know. Right. So yeah, your like, human skills, basically. Yeah. What I like my instincts, which yeah. was you know, to connect with them and then, you know, to show up and say, hey, you know, it's getting tense out here. Can we bring this down? Um, but I had no, you know, framework or no idea what I was doing. I had no idea of the science behind it. So that's when I found this guy, Moore Deutsch, went to Columbia, took my PhD, and that set me off in the kind of academic version of this path. That's great. That's great. And, you know, as you were describing sort of your upbringing and, and uh, I mean, you, you kind of grew up throughout the civil rights movement, you know, at the, at the peak of it, MLK and all that. So, but the way that you described it, the politics and and the race relations or divisiveness there is like well and this, Peter is describing almost like what's been going on in the last three to five years. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's the the last time our society was this chaotic, divided, potentially violent mm. was the nineteen sixty late nineteen sixties. Yeah. Wow. All right, let's let's dive into this book of yours. So I want to draw attention to the subtitle. Okay, um, subtitle is how to overcome toxic polarization, right. and the the term can mean uh, a lot of different things to different people. So how, how would you define toxic polarization? Yeah, great, thanks. So you know, polarization is, is just a thing in science, right? It's just when sort of forces are either drawn to or repelled by two different you know poles in a in a space. Um, but in politics, polarization is, an, particularly in a two-party system, is a good thing, right? You need to have, you know, people that believe in sort of tradition and have more conservative values and, you know, liberalism and the need to move things forward and progress, basically challenging each other um, in ways so that we can develop our society and move it forward. It, that's a good thing. In the 1950s, politics in america were the parties in america were too too overlapping there was a lack of polarization there was a lack of distinction between them and people were like come on you know give us some choice here <laughs> you know well today we have choice and what's been happening really since the mid to late 1970s is this increasing trajectory of not just you know ideological polarization beliefs in different you know issues positions on issues but you know, hate and enmity for the other side and distrust of the institutions and distrust of the other side. And we've gotten to a state that I see as toxic. The The indicators suggest that it is toxic. It's an environment where people, you know, half of Americans have, have become estranged from some somebody in their own family over politics. They don't feel like they can talk to them or relate to them anymore. But that trickles into the workplace. It trickles into, you know, our neighborhoods and buildings and communities. Yeah. So, you know, these divisions are everywhere. They contribute to the loneliness that is epidemic in this country. There's a profound sense of loneliness, you know, which is caused by a lot of things. But when you start to lose important people in your life, that adds to that problem. And then you see spikes in, you know, addiction. You see spikes in uh, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, all of that stuff. So the toxicity is not just from politics. But politics is both part of the toxicity, right, contributes to that, and vice versa. You know, the more anxious people feel, the more they look for scapegoats and outgroups to blame blame things on. So I call it toxic polarization because it is a state that is an, you know, it's, it's, we're sort of on a runaway train that's, that's been happening since the 70s, and it's getting worse and worse. It's sort of bigger than us, right? So it's not just me and my feelings and attitudes and how I think and what I watch, but it's my relationships, my networks, who I, where I will travel, where I won't travel, where I want to go on vacation, where I don't go to vacation, you know, all of these things, all these choices. Um, the media we watch and consume, right? The stuff we don't watch and consume. So it's, it's, a, it's a variety of factors, but it's in some ways, it's a trap. It's a trap that we, like an addiction. Yeah. In fact, there are addictive qualities to this. You know, when we get triggered with a sense of outrage by the other, it does stimulate parts of our brains that are also stimulated by narcotics, right? So there is an addictive substance or process that occurs in this 
Um, and, uh, you know, of course, the major platforms and the media companies know that they prey on that because it gets our attention. Yeah. Uh, but it is part of what's making us sick. So toxic polarization is an attempt to say this isn't polarization like good polarization, right? That's helping us as a society move forward. It's gotten to a place I, I was on a talk with a colleague yesterday and she calls it cal political calcification. We're in a place where we're just stuck and we hate the other side and we mm. blame the other side mm -hmm. and we're not able to solve problems, right? That is a toxic state at an individual and family and community level, but also at a national level. So many directions uh, we could take this. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, media, you mentioned the mental health, the addictive and how, well, anyway, so we could we could go there down that rabbit hole. I'm interested in the way that I the way you, you described it is that it has been a an evolution of polarization from the 70s because people think that this was something that just transpired in the last since since COVID, since you know March of 2020, or maybe since the Trump era where we became so divided. But you're like you're going back to the 70s. Yeah. But the way I see it is, it, tell me if I'm is this just my impression because of media is that that was a slow runaway train up until 2020. And then the last three, three and a half years, it's like, it's like that movie with Denzel Washington, right? The runaway train where now it's like, it's going 89 miles an hour around corners. And it's like, is this thing going to come off the rails? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, and, and truth be told, you mentioned family, uh, family dynamics. <laughs> I have family in California that no longer speaks to me because of a choice I made uh, related to COVID. It was a personal choice. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let you listen or speculate about what that may have been. Okay. And yet here we are, you know, two years, three years later, and we they still don't talk to me. We have tried to reach out, but we also come from different political spectrums. Yeah. And I, I just almost feel like politics has weaponized our thought process where now we can't even come to the table. So how, how do we get here, Peter? I mean, how what what got us to the place that we're at now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's a complicated answer, unfortunately, yeah. but I'll try to simplify it. I mean, again, it's not, not one thing. Right. I, I do think some of the things you've identified you know, a certain brand of politics, which is really divisive and blaming is one thing. The internet is another thing. And the and particularly, I have my colleague John Hyde is writing a book on, on 2010, 2011, when the internet like button started to come on. Oh, that was a tipping point when, like in Facebook, it's not just, you know, sharing information with your friends, but it's also building a community that affirms you. And so that kind of, you know, affirmation that comes from them is also addictive, right? Right. And drives the content, which just starts the more contentious it is, the more attention it gets. So the internet and the algorithms in the internet that, you know, point us to more provocative material is part of it. So, you know, it's politics, it's racial injustice and the outrage that's felt around that. Um, you know, so there are a lot of things that have happened recently that have been what we would call accelerants, right? So, but yeah, it is important to realize that if you look at trends in voting in Washington and when when they're bipartisan bills and when and when there's mostly just obstructionism, that's been increasing since the 1970s and continues to today. But also, if you just look at attitudes of Republicans and Democrats, both towards them, right, the other side, that the sense of enmity and contempt and distrust and really believing that they're the real problem, that's been growing since the late 1970s. Um, so these, this, it's what they call affective polarization. We don't like them, right? That has been increasing. But also, there's a, there's a thing that Pew studies, which is called uh, it's called uh, ideological consistency. And it basically is just what you see within parties, within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, is more and more of a, converg a convergence of opinions on like the major issues. So there isn't a lot of diversity in how we think about, you know, the difference between gay rights and immigration and, and environmentalism. And, you know, it's all like we just follow the tribe, right? And so we're, there's like an oversimplistic way of thinking about these issues that becomes more and more coherent within these tribes, within the parties, 
and they become farther and farther away from each other and more and more extreme, right? So all of these are elements of what's happening to us. But the question you ask is like, how did we get here? And I'll, I'll tell you one theory about that, which yeah. I think is a pretty compelling theory, which is that as we started, you know, the, the late 1960s, early 1970s were a time of what, what uh, political scientists call great political shock, right? We had <clears throat> major political assassinations, right, happen happening president, you know, the Kennedys were assassinated, King was assassinated, Malcolm X was assassinated, you know, there were multiple assassinations taking place. There was this anti-government movement, then Roe v. Wade happens, and there's these political divisions. So there was a lot of, you know, there was an, a lot of, you know, kind of cult, you know, the free love, you know, changing in standards. So it was a very tumultuous time, the late 1960s, early 70s. And, and that we would call, characterize that in political science as shocks. There were major shocks to our system, the Vietnam War and losing that war and the humiliation that came from that. And what you see sometimes in societies, if you if we zoom out, there's a group, a couple of guys, political scientists, Paul Deal and Gary Getz, that study a thing called the Correlates of War Database. And it's a 200 years of data that look at how nation states treat each other. And what they see when they zoom out and look across 200 years is that most long-term really intractable conflicts between nations start within 10 years of some major political shock that shock can be a coup attempt or it can be the end of the cold war or some big, big thing 9-11 right yeah, when yeah. there are big things that happened well in this country the 1960s and 70s were was a time of big things and then about 10 years later you see us split and divide and become increasingly polarized. Yeah. So one way of thinking about this historically is that those shocks that took place in the 60s set us off in a path and, and there hasn't been a real correction since then. Even 9-11 or COVID, both of which you think would have been big times of uniting us, 9-11 had a, had a temporary uniting effect, but then that split and COVID was immediately weaponized, right? So these events that you think would bring us together as a nation don't seem to change this trajectory. And that suggests that these shocks that take place are the unsettling things that create the conditions where, where uh, you know, societies get stuck on these patterns. And that's what the data says in this, particularly looking at interstate international relations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so before we get, because uh, this this show is about solutions. So, and obviously, the book title is the way out. We want yeah. to find a way out of this mess. Yeah. But I, there's a couple of terms that I want you to get out of the way. Okay, and this might lend to more to kind of beefing up where we are and why we're here. So, talk to us about what what American psychosis is. Yeah. Well, again, it is just this. I mean, so that was a. In some ways, a playful term, but uh, a probably fairly accurate term in that there is this split, yeah. right? Two realities that we live in. And that's a two media ecosystems. Again, physically, Americans today are moving away from the other tribe, right? So you see, even within cities, urban areas, you see red Americans moving toward other red Americans and away from blue and vice versa. So there is this segregation that's happening, right? Where we are splitting physically, but also on the internet, right? We get pointed in different directions to different content. The media we pay attention to, the facts that are presented to or misinformation that's presented to us. So we all end up living in these like parallel universes where we can't believe what they believe, right? And vice versa. And that is a form, you know, it is like, they have their reality. We have our reality. You yeah. Know? And yeah. you can't see any correspondence. That's almost like psychosis where there is, you know, my reality and then there's that reality. Right. Right. Is that what lends to what you also call? And here's the other term I wanted to get off is the vicious cyclone, because once you entrench yourself in your own ideology and the voices in your head that support the ideology, something's going on in your head. Yeah, I mean, what I the reason I use that is because people, what academics tend to do, and policymakers too, is they try to say what this is really about. It's really about one thing. It's about Donald Trump. It's 
about gerrymandering. It's about a deep sense of loneliness in the country, right? That there's really one thing that this is about. Well, I think that's a that's the wrong way to look at it. This is a complicated problem. And it has elements that are now within us, like our neurological processes and what we, you know, like what we can pay attention to and what's too hard to pay attention to, but also our social networks, our psychology, our media, our, you know, voting structures, all of these things eventually line up and they start to feed each other in ways that pit us against each other and 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 serve to pull us apart. That is a, a, you know, it's a hard way to understand problems because what science teaches us to do is to take things apart, find the one thing that's broken and fix it. You know, let's just do ranked choice voting. If we do that, we'll be fine. (laughs) Well, no, that's not true. This is a, this current problem of toxic polarization is what I call a biopsychosocial structural problem. Mm. It's different levels, different things working in concert that are serving it's sort of like a riptide in the ocean serving to pull us apart, and it's hard to understand it. And we think, oh, if we can just talk to somebody on the other side and explain to them, well, that backfires because there are just too many other things that pull us apart. Even these encounter groups, which are well-intentioned groups like Braver Angels that bring red and blue Americans together, you know, they, they come together for an hour and a half or two hours. They have a good conversation. They feel good about the other person that they talk to. But it doesn't change their attitude about the party. It doesn't, and then, it, and it, frankly, it does. It's, it's not very sustainable. The effects aren't sustainable because there's so many other things in our in our day that are t- characterizing them as the problem, right? Yeah. So that's what I mean by these sort of vicious cyclones. Is that there's, it's like a storm, right? It's yeah. it's it's something that there's a philosopher named Karl Popper called. So there are two kinds of problems in the world. Clock problems, which we're familiar with, right? If your watch breaks, you take it to the shop and they fix it. If your computer breaks, if your car breaks, you know, we we know how to do those things. Cloud problems are different. There are these highly complex things. There's a lot of interactions, weird stuff happening. You think you're doing the right thing and it ends up backfiring on you. That's the nature of this problem. And, And it's important to understand it like that because we may try and to make good faith efforts to make a difference and they may not work at least right away or they may backfire we have to understand that this isn't problem solving as usual it's a different category of problem solving yeah so i want this to really hit close to home to you listeners okay and that's why i brought peter in uh, uh, because we have to acknowledge our own confirmation bias peter yeah. and the role that that plays in this toxic polarization. So walk us through confirmation bias and also the role that mainstream media as well as social media plays in that. Well, so confirmation bias is really just, again, where we seek information that will affirm our beliefs, right? So if I believe that, you know, today is a beautiful sunny day and then my phone says it's raining, it's like what you know, and I just denied that. It's a it's a glitch. It's something problematic, right? So we we seek out information that feels right, is consistent with our values and beliefs, and that is comforting to us. It's easier to process cognitively, and when there's information that comes in that is either controversial or contradictory to our basic assumptions, we tend to just deny it. We just we don't even process it. I mean, somewhere we're processing it, but we don't we we try to ignore it and not pay attention to it. That's a process of confirmation bias. And again, it's sort of rooted in our values and beliefs as they are. And the media knows this, right? Mm-hmm. So they know that if they tell you a certain story and you trust them, that you'll come back to them again and again and not change the channel, right? So uh, the media and social media prey on the the understanding that if I go to a website that is, you know, a Breitbart website, which is, you know, more right wing, and if I'm going there a lot, they're going to start sending me information that will be consistent with that kind of political orientation because they know that's what, what gets my attention, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're measuring what we're doing and then using that in their business model to keep my attention and keep me engaged with them. And that happens on on mainstream media, right? The news programs understand that, MSNBC and Fox and Breitbart and others. Yeah. Um, 
as well as on social media, right? The platforms, they they can really gauge where we go, where our attention is, how long we stay on an article, right? So they use that, they use that comfort tendency where we're comfortable, you know, seeking information or just even entertainment. And they use that as part of their business model to keep us engaged. Not only that, but social media is the worst place for me, at least. I don't know if you agree with me to actually have healthy, constructive dialogue. I can I have to tell a quick story about that, <laughs> please. <laughs> so in 2018, I was invited to a pop up meeting in New York City of a bunch of uh, social media folks to talk about polarization on social media. And I showed up in the room and it was a bunch of like, you know, Google and Jigsaw and Facebook executives and people like that, and a couple of academics. And the facilitator wrote up on the board, what kind of dialogue should we be having to promote a healthy virtual society? That was the question. And I said, what do you mean by dialogue? And then there was silence. And I said, because in my world of peace building and mediation, dialogue is a very specific thing. Most people think it's debate, right? Debate is a game to win right? Debate is you have a position, I listen to it, I look for flaws in your argument, then I weaponize it and say, aha, you're wrong because of this fact, right? And it's a game of scoring points and winning. Most of us think that's what dialogue is. Dialogue in my world is the opposite of that. It's not about me trying to persuade you or win a game. It's about me trying to listen and learn mm. and discover. In our true dialogue process, I learn about you and your, you know, your life, and I learned about the issues that we're talking about, which are more complicated than I came than I understand. And oftentimes, I learn about me because I'm thinking about, you know, this issue of guns. You know, what it makes me really associate to is my older brother, and I never thought about that before. But that's important to me, right? So, there, so it's a it's a process of opening and discovering. So I make this distinction in this room. I say, what do you mean by dialogue? I give this definition, then there's silence. And one of the co-founders of Facebook was in the room and he said, oh, well, if that's dialogue, then there's no major media platform, social media platform that promotes dialogue. It's all about competition and comparison and contentiousness and coercion. And, you know, that's the coin of the realm is get people addicted to the kind of, you know, primitive parts of their brains. It's not about opening and discovering. You know? Right. And so founder, you know, one of the co-founders of Facebook said that. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> We're in trouble. Yeah. We're in trouble. That's the business model, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's start to look for a way out. Okay. So one of the things I want to bring up is that this research you earned that when deeply divided groups and societies decide to change direction and cho choose another course, well, in this case, choose peace, really, it usually follows a period of, of great instability and, and turbulence. Yeah. Uh, so what happens to get people to that point? Because I'm thinking everyone right now is in a, in a state of like, all right, I, I'm done. I'm over this. I, I'm I'm miserable. Can we just get past this? Yeah. But you found that I guess we, we need to get to maybe rock bottom place where we decide, all right, now we need to regroup and maybe shift our thinking and, and, and find ways to reconcile with the other side. So, yeah, I mean, again, the what's important, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the 1960s and that kind of tumult is remember... Yeah that the changes that we saw societally really kicked in, you know, somewhere between five and 10 years later, right? So there's all of this disruption and instability and angst and violence. And then you see about 10 years later, this sort of change in pattern. The good news about that research is that they find that those kinds of political shocks also lead to pivots in a better direction where societies like Costa Rica in 1948 came out of a bloody civil war, thousands of people dead and said, okay, enough. <laughs> you know, We're going to like change the direction of our nation. We're going to reinvest away from defense and into, you know, business and into education and the ecology and grow a new society. And they really made an intentional choice to do that coming out of a disaster. Well, the good news is that that state of, as you describe, exhaustion, misery, anxiety, where people, and it's true that somewhere 
approaching 90% of Americans feel that today. No. They feel tired of, you know, the, we're fed up. They, it's, it's called the, the, uh, a group called More in Common, call it the exhausted middle majority. Okay. And it's the, mo the majority of us that are just like tired of craziness in Washington, screaming matches on the news. We don't want to hear it. We don't want it. We just want people to solve problems, right? We want them to get back to actually governing, not just running for office all the time. And so that's the good news is that most of us are miserable and frustrated and ang you know angry about this the current situation because it's it takes that kind of motivation to build a movement where people step up and say enough right we don't want this from our leaders leaders anymore we're going to go in a different direction so that's the good news that's what happened in the 60s and that's what can be happening today you know i was talking i mentioned this panel i was on yesterday and a political scientist said you know i'm surprised we didn't see major change coming out of covid you know but we are. We are. Mm. Think about the great resignation. A hundred million people in the last two years have voluntarily left their jobs. Yeah. The workforce is only 130 million people, right? <laughs> so a vast majority of Americans said, you know what? I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't yeah. want this job. I don't want this whatever. They've, they're reconsidering their life. That's a good space for people to change. What the book, The Way Out, is about is saying, well, how do you do that, right? Like, really, okay, so I may be miserable, but what do I do? If I want to have a different political space, a, a different way of understanding the world, a different way of engaging with my neighbors, like, specifically, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, right. And so what we tried to do in the book, or what I tried to do in the book, is cherry pick. You know, we study these societies like Costa Rica. There are societies all over the world. Botswana, Mauritius, New Zealand, the Scandinavian countries that have a history of, you know, violence and war and civil, um, you know, instability, who at some point said, okay, we're going to go in a very different direction. Uh, and these are the rules, right? And they change. So we look at the conditions and we look at how they do that, how they make that transition. And that's what the book, The Way Out offers is, you know, these kind of five things you can do that even in your own personal life, can encourage you to start to pivot and take a different direction. And I want to, I have to make a pitch. I, I, I yeah. published recently five, uh, sorry, four articles in uh, Time Magazine um, about how to do this. Because the book, The Way Out, is an overview of the science tells us that these five things happen. And in Time Magazine, what I say is, uh, last summer, my daughter and I and a group of my former students said, all right, let's try to really do this. Let's live this, right? Yeah. And so we have been doing that. We created a thing we call a challenge, which is like a four-week opportunity to try this on. And we created 100 different small things that you could do every day. One thing a day it may take five minutes, 10 minutes, right, to start to nudge yourself in a different direction. That's what we think is important is not just that people are miserable, but they know what the alternatives are, like really know what they are. Like, what do I do right now? Right. So do you want to give us some examples of what that would be? But be, let me preface by saying that so many of us feel powerless because we can't change structures at the government level. We can't change the way that the media follows a narrative, right? And we can't change algorithms in, in social media. But we can change how we respond to each other in our local communities and in our workspaces. So nudge us forward in in, the, in those local contexts. Yeah. Well, what I what I want to say is I agree with a sense of that that it mm -hmm. does feel like those things are too far off and too impossible to touch, um, and we and it's very difficult to affect change in those things alone, but not when we're together not when we mobilize together. And that's okay. what I want to talk about. So the approach is fo focuses on four things. Mm -hmm. One, is, it starts with you, right? So the first week of this, we encourage you to, to take some surveys, listen to some music, you know, uh, get up and move into your chair. There are certain principles that we use that allow you to reflect on you and your own contributions to this and your own habits and tendencies and the things that you can do to start to uh, uh, move in a different direction. One of them I do is uh, a couple of years ago when I wrote this book, I decided that, you know, I too was falling prey to the comfort media, right? So the news breaks, I go to my channels, 
you know, on the radio, my podcasts, my, you know, television news breaking sh- uh, networks that I'm comfortable with. That's what we automatically do is try to you know, get the information from tr- trusted sources. Right. What I force myself to do now is identified four or five people who are, I think, smart, decent, well-intentioned people who are politically opposed from me, mm-hmm. right? So they're on the other side of many arguments, many issues, but I really believe that they're in it for good reasons. They're not trying to just attack and you know run for office. They're trying to make sense of this world. And I force myself when the news breaks to turn them on, go to their Twitter, go to the uh, the news station that they may be on. You know, I try to find their voices because, again, we get comfortable in our story and our narrative that right. resonates with our values. You got to push yourself these days to branch out and get other voices. And look, you may disagree with them, but oftentimes, even if I disagree, I think, you know, they got a point. They got a point, and I have to, I, somehow I have to accommodate that information because right. that reality right it's not just my side so, so it's seeking understanding it's like you said you don't have to agree with them you can still hold on to your belief system but but be able to go to the other side to understand what's going on on their end the other side if uh, uh, i would say trusted sources on the other side and that's, gotcha. that's the thing because you know there's craziness on both extremes yeah rhetoric hate you know blame and that's so addictive and it's it's it is like junk food, right? That junk food is out there. I don't. I'm not encouraging that you spend any time there. You know, there's enough exposure to that. It is trying to find sources that you think are well intentioned, even if you disagree with them, right? Gotcha. In particular, if you disagree with them, and that's the only caveat. But yeah, it is about trying to understand this world. It's a complicated world we're in. These are complicated issues. Immigration is an extremely complicated set of issues, right? Mm-hmm. Oral, political, you name it. You know, we don't understand these things. So we just take a side and then we get comfortable with our side. So you have to force yourself to look at. So the first week of the challenge is a, 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 a recommendation that you try on some of these nudges, right? And one of them is, yeah, find three what I call frenemies, right? People that you trust who have a different point of view. The second week, which gets harder, is that one of the big problems that happens today is the is our group of people that we're actually comfortable talking to talking politics with, right? Our friends, our colleagues that share our values and share our political opinions. And we love to dish together and we love to gossip and we love to blame, you know, the idiots on the other side. <laughs> that space. That space has gotten tighter and tighter. And we've gotten less and less honest with our own groups, right? Our own family groups or friend groups, right? And, you know, let, let me give an example of this. I'm at, I'm at Columbia University. I'm a professor there, right? There's a group that ranks universities every year on free speech. How comfortable are the students in speaking their mind, in, ta- you know, listening to different opinions? And they rank universities, I think 180, maybe 200 universities. In the last two years, Columbia University has been ranked dead last. It's a category they call abysmal. That means that the students at Columbia feel like they can't say things. They can't, you know, they they can't express doubts about political opinions. They're not comfortable with alternative voices, you know, conservative voices coming to campus. They're so tightly constrained that they can't think. This is Columbia University. You're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree, and yet you can't, you know, that's a pathology. And the pathology exists on both sides, right? But it's it's really taken over institutions, and that's a problem. So the second week encourages people to start to think about how do you get real carefully, respectfully in your own group? How do you start to reintroduce nuance, maybe tolerance, maybe new information in ways that your own friend group can tolerate, right? Not a not an easy thing, but it's so we gave you five days of exercises. I think every day we offer you five or six different options, some of them small, some of them bigger, where you can start to, you know, think about how you might do this. One of them is the first step is there's a, a social courage challenge. This is just a, 
a, a survey that is eight questions or something about like how comfortable are you actually going into your group and saying uh, yeah I'm not sure that you know I understand the implications of the, Roe v, the overturning of Roe v Wade but there are different sides here you know can you do you feel like you can say that or do you feel like you'll get crushed you know? yeah, yeah. so it, it's like it's taking a look at yourself and your capacity to introduce that and so that's the second week is about you know introducing information into yeah. your own group that you think might be good for your group to know be mindful of right and it builds off the first week if you're listening to people on the other side who are smart and, and make points you might say, you know, I was listening to so-and-so and they said this, what do you think about it, right? right. So that's second week. Third week is harder. Again, it's reaching out to the other side. And I, one of my, the Time Magazine piece I wrote in October, right before the midterms, uh, the last midterms, describes something I did this summer. I had a neighbor who's a, uh, I've known for a long time, but started to spout his political opinions, which would sounded sort of insane. And so I basically just stopped engaging with him, right? I just like, it was like, I'm out. But, at, but you know, then I wrote this book and I'm thinking about this and I thought, I can't do this. You know, I have to. So I reached out to my neighbor. I said, would you go for a walk with me in the park? There's a local park here. He he was nervous at first. He's like, what, what are you? What are your intentions? <laughs> what are your intentions? Why take a walk, you know? And walking is part of one of the principles that we we try to utilize in this book is that when you, you know, when you sit down across a table with somebody and talk politics, oftentimes, you know, again, oftentimes we don't know what we're talking about, but we have our positions and our opinions and we sort of see each other as the problem and it can easily escalate. If you ask people to walk with you, particularly outside, side by side in nature, it's a very different dynamic. And what research has shown us is that it's better. It often helps. Even if you just agree to disagree, it's good to do that. So I went for a walk, you know, I, I reached out to my neighbor, I went for a walk, I listened, I was very intentional about it. You know, I didn't think, I didn't get triggered by the first thing he said, because that would have been taken us nowhere. I knew how that would play out. So I thought to myself, well, what do I want to do here, which is about kind of setting up the conditions. And it was like, I want to listen, I want to try to understand, like, how does he get to these positions, you know? Yeah. And then we walked and I listened and it was, a, you know, it, you know, it wasn't easy. I was nervous about it. You know, I was sick to my stomach beforehand, you know, and I'm a mediator, but, uh, but it was, it was a powerful experience. And I write about that in this case because it, you know, did we like solve, did we come, you know, to perfect solutions? No, it was an hour walk in the park, but we both agreed to do it again. It felt right. I, mm. I learned a lot of things. I think we both learned a lot of things about each other. That's the third week is can you find somebody, might be in your family, might be at work, might be, you know, that you feel like you could reach out to and listen. Just yeah. listen, right. Don't try to persuade them. Don't shut them down. You know, just allow them the space to listen. That's an extremely powerful uh, process. Mm. The fourth week, I just want to say quickly, is getting back to your point about changing your community, changing the society, because what the good news is that there are thousands of groups in our communities, in sectors like politics and business and other organizations that are trying to take on these incentive structures, right? Social media incentive structures, mainstream media, there's a group called Solutions Journalism, which really works with reporters. So there are all these groups. And there's a website that I would point your audience to called the Bridging Divides Initiative. Uh, it's not mine. It's out of Princeton University. And they basically, for the past several years, have just been identifying these kind of bridge building initiatives all over the country. If you go to it, there's a map of the USA. You can toggle into your community and you can see, hey, look, there's a dozen places here where people are coming together to take on some issue um, together in, in cross-partisan groups, right? And that's the key. So to me, it's not only working on yourself and your own tendencies. It's not only working with your own group. It's not only, only having the courage to reach out to somebody that you feel estranged for, but eventually 
you might find others on the other side who share your concerns about something, the media being toxic or addictive or, you know, and those groups are taking those on. So it allows you, encourages you kind of work your way up because these things all work together in this complex problem that we're situated in. Yeah. Tell me that website one more time. So there's a website called, uh, if you search, so Starts With Us is a nonprofit organization uh, that was founded by uh, Daniel Lebetsky, who is the Kind Bar mm-hmm. founder. Uh, yeah. And Starts With Us is their organization. And they've taken the, the content that I've talked about, these hundred different nudges, and they put it on a web, on their website. So if you go to Starts With Us, it's called the Finding the Way Out Political Courage Challenge. Okay. And it is a, a, a link that you can go to, and it'll kind of walk you through, you know, say, all right, here's week one, here's what you can do, here's week two. And again, I encourage people to check it out, to start small, do a couple of things that are, you know, easier to do. And importantly, my biggest encouragement is that you don't do it alone. You find a friend, your your mate, your siblings, your co-workers, you know, your bowling team, whoever, you know, right. some group and say, would you do this with me? All right, let's try this and see how it goes. Because last summer when we did this, it was really important to be able to, at the end of a week, sit down with somebody and say, that was hard. <laughs> you know, it was really hard. Uh, this one was cool, but that one was really hard. And I felt burned by that. And, and you know, to be able to make sense of that with somebody else really helps. So workplaces are a great place to consider doing this where, you know, like my fantasy is that Nike, for example, will say, we have a lot of internal political divisions today, which they do, right? And that we want to encourage our employees just to try this, but we really want to focus on the movement piece. You know, one of the principles is this idea of moving together with other people, Great, because we're, you know, we're a physical, we're a PE business, right? <laughs> we're an exercise business. So take that chunk and focus on that and do that within your company because companies provide a space or can provide a space, a container that offers this. It's for free. There's no, you know, money uh, uh, exchanged. And then they can do what they feel like would help them and encourage people to do it together. Yeah, that's great. Those resources are fantastic. I'll make sure I put those in my show notes so you guys can find it. Peter, as we wind down here, what's your ultimate hope for people reading this book? Um, That they feel hope. Because again, I think that we feel frustrated and angry and lost and anxious, but there isn't a clear sense of what to do. Like, what's the alternative? Our our go-to strategies are too automatic, they're too habitual, they're really hard patterns to break. And so being miserable and frustrated is the first step, but having options, feasible options that you would really try uh, is the second step. And if you can try that and get a sense of, yeah, I could do this, right? I could do this for a couple of weeks and, and try this out. That gives people a sense of hope, gives people a sense of efficacy that they can actually do something in their own life, with their own group, across, you know, with people they're estranged from. And that provides a sense of hope and possibility. And I think that's really important. Love it. Love it. All right. So tradition on the show is this question is the the love leadership question. So, you know, in an age of uh, so much toxic polarization, I mean, uh, what's a good practice or behavior or habit that we can do for more to express more love and care in the world or with our neighbors, with our coworkers to break these strongholds of division. Yeah. Well, I think that leaders have a, a, a central role to play, which is to do their best to model this, right? To do their best to, to try to be mindful of what am I trying to do here, right? We all are in this space. We all get triggered and outraged all the time. I do, right? All the time. And so the question is, can you as a leader work in a way that models, how do we do this? So, so a, a leader saying, I'm going to try this challenge. I'm going to I'm going to go through it. I invite you to go through it with me. Let's talk about it. Let's see if it's helpful. If not, let's criticize it and go somewhere else, right? But I'm going to do this because I believe in 
the need to change our society, but ultimately just to help our culture here. And so that we don't see each other as the enemy, but we find ways to understand each other and listen to each other, right? So that kind of social modeling we know is essential. And without it, it's very difficult for organizations and groups to you know take it seriously and commit to it. But if a leader is doing it, you you know you it signals the importance of it and it signals a, a need to commit to it. So that's what my recommendation would be is, you know, give it a try. You know, it's not only symbolic, it's, you know, we know from science, social modeling of those in authority have a huge impact on followers. So give it a try. Yeah. And it's great medicine for me as well, Peter, because like you, I tend to get triggered as well by certain ideologies in the world. So I'm, I'm going to take that challenge myself and I'm going to report that in a future episode about how that went. So thank you for that. Fantastic. I, I welcome you and I would love to hear how it goes. Excellent. All right. We bring it home with two questions as we do with every guest. And here it is. Personally, Peter, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Well, um, you know, there are so many things, right? Yeah. Ukraine, you know, it uh, scales up and scales down. I was reading an article that was in Time Magazine, not mine, but uh, this morning about how many uh, local political leaders are being attacked because of their politics are are being harassed are being what they call doxied which is i guess they share information on social media Mm. you know they're 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 and and then physically threatened and many of them you know they're and it's everything from mayors and city council people to librarians right around right and these people are living in fear now. And that just makes me sick. I mean, we're in a country, first of all, with 450 million guns that we know of. That's a problem. But in addition to that, you have this anger and this vitriol and this idea that you can use intimidation and threat politically. And that's become pervasive. And it is. So leaders, all of these leaders are get you know, their families are getting confronted. They're getting confronted. Their kids are getting confronted. It's not what any of them signed up for. And that is sickening to me because that is that this this toxicity has spread down into communities and and families and neighborhoods. And that's going to make some of the best people say, I'm not going to do this job. Right. I'm stepping away from this. That's that makes me heart sick. And that's why I do this work. Fantastic. Finally, you close us out your way with a key takeaway to keep us inspired. Um, yeah, I think again, it, I would go back to the fact that there is hope. We've studied uh, one of the, you know, I study conflict. I also study peaceful nations and I study nations that have found their way out of this time and have reset and have uh, live in sustainably peaceful societies. They're not, I, they're not utopias. They're not perfect. They have problems, but there are extraordinary places around the world that have done this. They sort of learned from their mistakes and pivoted. We can do this. That's my hope. Listen, it's been an enlightening conversation. I, I, I feel that if you're somebody that is not so entrenched in that anger, resentment of another point of view that does not align with yours, if you have that capacity for self to building your self-awareness, it's, it's the only way to go. I, I have heard you talk about you didn't say it explicitly, but I see compassion and empathy in listening to understand the other side, to seek that kind of community, even with people that may not agree with you. The fact that you took a walk. I love that example the, the, that you went back to your neighbor, even after you thought he was crazy and said, let's, let's go for a walk together around the park yeah. just so I can understand you. Okay. And, and how many of us actually do that? So I am I am calling my listeners to raise that ability to just be courageous enough to step into that uncomfortable space, just to be able to see someone else's perspective. And in the long run, hey, I, I mean, there are probably a lot of bonuses to that, Peter, where even though you don't align politically with somebody, you may end up being really good friends with that person. And you never know when you need somebody, a neighbor, mm-hmm. right? And that can surprise you. The one thing I would say is I would encourage your your listeners to do that. 
but they need to do it intentionally. They need to think about how they're going to do it. So, you know, read this Time Magazine piece that I wrote in October. Um, go to the website because it, it it walks you through, you know, first of all, ask yourself, what are you trying to do here? What do you want to do? What's like, what would be a good outcome of this? And think a little bit strategically so that you don't just show up. They say something that ir- irritates you, you attack and it gets worse yeah. because there's a lot of that going on. So you really need to prepare to do this. And I think there's tremendous benefit if you'll do it. Yeah. Peter's got the tools, folks. He's got the challenge. Let's let's uh, let's let's just have an open mind to explore these possibilities. All right, Peter, if people want to connect with you, uh, point us to a couple of places they can go. So the book has a website called finding uh, called the way and starts with us has this other website. Um, but, you know, if I'm at Columbia, if you search my name, it's Peter T. Coleman. A bunch of nonsense comes up. He's all um, over the place. <laughs> yeah, you can find my email and you can find my, you know, contact information there. And so reach out to me. Fantastic. Peter, thank you again. It's been enlightening and we're all better for it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And I, uh, I look forward to, you know, engaging with your community. Fantastic. And you can keep the conversation going on social media with hashtag love in action podcast. And like I mentioned, I'll look for my show notes as well as a YouTube link to watch the show on my website, marcelschwantis.com. I'll have all of Peter's resources there and websites. And finally, hey, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of this show, let's chat. Reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.